Uh, if you're just joining us, as we mentioned, we've been going through a series titled Practicing the Way of Jesus. And I think it's been so relevant and challenging for me personally and our church at large. Because I think for a lot of us, uh, I think we like the idea of Jesus. We like the idea of believing in him and what he's done for us. I think we have a harder time when it comes to actually following Jesus though. Following Jesus in the day-to-day life and practicing what it actually means to be his disciple. I know this because when I talk to Christians or when I talk to people in our church, when they become members, nobody has an issue with the doctrine and belief in the gospel, but it has very little impact on their actual day-to-day life. And if you look at the life of Jesus and what he calls his followers to, that is uh, inconceivable uh, in the scriptures. And so last week we heard about the foundation of practice of Bible reading. And so thank you, Jason, for sharing that. Uh, and I loved it. I soaked it up because I actually enjoy Bible reading, right? Uh, the funny thing about Bible reading is even non-Christians like studying the Bible, right? It's something concrete. It's something tangible. It's in front of you. And so, you know, there's a lot of history buffs who just love reading it for what it is. It's this timeless, number one most popular book in history. But you know what is... And always has been the hardest practice for me personally, and I think for a lot of us, it's prayer. <laughs> and for that baby over there, right? I've always had a hard time practicing prayer. Prayer is a very strange phenomenon if you think about it, right? Even as a Christian, it's a strange thing. But especially if you're not a Christian, the idea that we pray, we bow our heads, and we're kind of talking to a wall, it's very, very strange. And so it is only fitting that God and his sovereignty picked me and assigned me to talk about this topic. So prayer is the one we're going to tackle today. And there's so many things to say about prayer, but for today's message, I want to focus on the aspects of what prayer looked like in the life of Jesus in particular, and then draw out some principles from there, particular to see how can we begin to see the importance of prayer in our lives and to begin to practice it together as a church. And again, with every practice we do, just know our pastoral burden is we want to talk a lot more about it. And so down the line, hopefully in the new future, we want to dig deeper for every practice we do go over. So if you have your Bibles, but more specifically your programs, if you can pull those out. We're going to look at three brief texts. I'm not necessarily going to be preaching from those texts. I'm just going to use it to reference, to get a a broad overview of what the New Testament says. So as we turn to our first passage in Luke chapter 6, then we'll look at Luke 18 and then 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So at our church, we believe whenever we open God's word that God is present and speaking. So if we can, can we all rise together as we read these three passages together? And then I pray for us before we get into God's word. So first, Luke chapter 6. Verse 12, it's the reading of God's word. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, he being Jesus, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Luke 18, 1, second passage, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. And lastly, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 to 19, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, and do not quench the spirit. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, as we open your word, we pray that your spirit would move and work and speak and help us to see the beauty, the privilege uh, of prayer that you have granted for all those who place their faith in you. And as we look at just how pivotal prayer was, not only for Christ, but for all Christians, that it could be something that we seek to implement and practice individually, but more specifically as a church. So we thank you, God, for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So question to get our brains kind of uh, warm. What is the image or picture that comes to mind when you think of prayer or the practice of prayer, right? Just kind of do a mental image. Uh, the image that comes to mind for me, it is this uh, image of prayer that was ingrained in my mind since a very early age as a little kid. And it's the one that's projected behind me, if you see it. Uh, 
it's a very popular image, right? And I I'm, I'm guarantee a lot of you guys have seen it before now. I don't know why every Korean household had this painting or picture hanging in their house. I don't know if it was like a group discount or like they all just purchased it. But literally, I was a pastor's kid. Every home I went to, for some reason, had this photo hanging in the home. And at least in my house, it's obvious why my, my ministry family hung it up. Because just look at it, right? It oozes this idea of piety and godliness. Like you have an elderly man. Uh, he has a Bible nearby. Uh, what's, it's seemingly a simple meal. could also be communion. His arms are like the perfect V of prayer, right? And it's just the ideal posture you would think of when you think of prayer. And so that's where me, I saw this everywhere I went. I saw it in my home. And I thought, oh, that, that's prayer. Now, I'm not necessarily saying there's anything wrong with this picture of prayer, but I was curious. I was like, what is this picture? Where did it even come from? So I took some time to do a little research on the photo. Turns out this was a staged photo. <laughs> it was staged in a studio. It was taken around 1920, and the book, it's not even a Bible. It's a dictionary. They used it as a prop to represent a Bible. And the guy, as holy as he may appear, the locals said he was actually known more for his drinking than for his actual religious piety. In other words, that is the old school version of hashtag do it for the gram. Absolutely. And I find that so ironic but so telling because I think in a lot of ways the discrepancy between what appears to be and what actually is, I think is representative of how prayer malfunctions as a practice in a lot of our lives. What appears to be versus what actually is. And I realized in my life, this idea of praying properly with a pious display for the public eye, it was so unhelpfully formative in my understanding and practice of prayer. Now, whether you can resonate with my more churchy experience or you have your own image or picture of prayer, there is no better place or rather better person to look at than Jesus, amen, to get a picture of what prayer is and ought to be. So with the three texts we read earlier as our launch pad, there's three points I want to make. Number one, we're going to see the priority of prayer in the life of Jesus, how important it was to him. Number two, the practice of prayer in the life of Jesus, how did he actually practice prayer? And then thirdly, the practice of prayer in our lives today. How does that translate now for us today as followers of Christ? So first, the priority. So I recently turned 33, happy birthday to me, um, and it dawned on me the other day that if my life paralleled Jesus, I died this year. <laughs> Isn't that crazy that I'm the same age as Jesus like, what have I done with my life, right? Jesus is about to save the world, and I'm like, you know, I didn't do much. And if you didn't know, Jesus died 33 years. That's why I'm saying that. And I look back on 33 years of life, I kind of couldn't help but wonder, uh, I wonder if I've lived well. You ever have those moments, whether it's like pivotal moments or midlife crisis or quarter life, whatever it is, you kind of ask yourself, have I been living a successful life? Have I lived life to the fullest? Like, do you ever wonder that time to time? I know you do, because we're all human. And the Bible tells us something about Jesus. Jesus understood and lived life as it was intended to be lived. That's something we often forget. And what I mean by that is he was literally the perfect human. In other words, one of the most amazing traits about Jesus, unlike all of us, is Jesus never wasted time. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't waste time. He never does something that he regrets doing. There's never a moment in his life where he looks back and says, ooh, I wish I didn't do that. Ooh, that was not a proper use of my energy and time. And though the Gospels only give us a glimpse of how Jesus spent his days and how he chose to spend his time, a strong case could be made that Jesus' life clearly paints the picture that time spent with God the Father was one of the greatest pillars and priorities in his life. 
It is an underemphasized reality just how much Jesus prioritized and valued prayer. Rarely do you hear Jesus spoken of as a man devoted to prayer. Look at Luke chapter 5, verse 15 to 16. It says, yet the news about him spread all the more. Jesus is a busy guy. He's a popular guy. He could be a productive guy. But verse 16 tells us, often Jesus would instead withdraw to lonely places and pray. Now, if Jesus gauged the success of his life in the way that a lot of us do, by productivity and accomplishment, right? Do you ever ask that? Like, did I get a lot done? Isn't that how we often gauge success in our life? Don't you think it is far more productive for Jesus to heal as many people as he can, perform as many miracles as he can on his 33 years of life? But verse 16 tells us, instead, Jesus, understanding proper value and importance, would actually choose and prioritize spending time in prayer to God over being productive for God. Now think about that. Jesus is choosing to pray rather than heal someone with cancer. That's what's going on here. It's not that healing is not important. So how much more value should prayer have that Jesus would choose it over that? It should tell us something about how Jesus viewed prayer. Not only that, in Luke 6, 12, the text we read earlier, it says, Jesus would often go to the mountain and spend all night in prayer to God. Do you know what this means? It means literally Jesus would spend all night in prayer to God. It's not a hyperbole. And lest we forget, it's not because Jesus didn't get tired, right? Sometimes we think he's like this superhuman. Well, of course he could spend all night. He's Jesus. No, 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 no. If anything, he was far more tired than any of us. And yet Jesus would quite literally pull all-nighters in order to prioritize prayer. And this one probably hits home for a lot of us. Because I know a lot of us here, we protect sleep. We would pay good money if you could sleep more, wouldn't you? And yet Jesus shows us he often would prioritize prayer over even sleep. Unless we think Jesus was just doing this for himself, Luke 18.1 says he also told his disciples, he would tell them often in his teaching in a parable specific in Luke 18.1, the purpose of the parable, which we can't get into, was literally to tell his disciples, you ought to always pray and not lose heart. And I think he echoes that today if you call yourself a Christian. So the point is simple. Jesus viewed prayer as important. He viewed it as necessary in his life, more than productivity, more than even sleep. And he manifested that by protecting and carving out time to make it happen. Now, there's two quick things I want us to consider in light of this. Very natural overflows of it. First, we can never legitimately make the excuse that we are too busy to pray in light of this. One thing I realize is busyness, even though it is a common phenomenon, is actually relative. Here's what I mean. When I talk to a college student, I have no problem boasting about my busyness. You know why? Because I firmly believe I'm way busier than them. So when they say, oh, I feel so busy, I said, all you have to care about is yourself. I have a wife. I have aging parents. I have two kids. I have all these financial problems. And I just tell them how busy I am, how crazy life is. But there is this couple. Now, now granted, having two kids on there too, which I have, it's like the black belt of busyness. Like I feel, I can, I can go against most people toe to toe. But there is this couple. They are like, black belt 10th degree at our church. They have three kids, twins under one. When they walk, when their stroller comes by and when they walk by me, I just, I don't say anything. (laughs) I don't say how tired I am. I don't say how busy I am. I just say, how's it going guys? Everything okay? What happened? It's relative. Now, 
try to think of a busier and crazier occupation and life calling than savior of the world. Now, please understand, I'm not trying to trivialize that your life is busy and how draining life can get. I get that. For all of us, that's the case. What I'm trying to get us to see, though, is that the root issue of prayerlessness is not busyness. It cannot be busyness. And the humility needs to start there by recognizing it's actually what our hearts prioritize as valuable and worthy of our time. D.A. Carson, in his book on praying, uh, it's a little bit longer, but I think he gets it right on the head. He says, we don't drift into spiritual life. We do not drift into disciplined prayer. We do not grow in prayer unless we plan to pray. That means we must set aside time to do nothing but pray. What we actually do reflects our highest priorities. It matters little whether you're the mother of active children who drain away your energy, an important executive in a major multinational corporation, or a plumber working overtime to put your children to college. At the end of the day, if you're too busy to pray, you're too busy. Cut something out. Point number one. Number two. Jesus' prioritization of prayer, and I really think you, I I would ask that you really massage and meditate this into your heart, because that's what I'm trying to do, and it's actually profound. Jesus' prioritization of prayer shows us that there is something so profoundly necessary and powerful about prayer that is deeply worth exploring as Christians. Wouldn't you say so? The fact that he valued it so much at least merits our curiosity, like why? Why was it so important to Jesus I recently watched the amazing documentary called Redeem Team. I, I think many of you guys saw it. It's about the U.S. national team in 2008. They went to the Olympics, got the gold medal. And even though at large it's about the team itself, a case can be made. It's actually the, the heart of the story is Kobe Bryant, RIP. And the players all shout how Kobe, he was kind of like the unofficial leader of the team. And part of the reason is Kobe was just different. He's just different. Everybody knows this about Kobe. He's just different. For example, they would share stories about how when they go to like a city, they would go party till like 4 a.m. And they would all come home, ready to go sleep. And Kobe's dressing up to go to the gym. And they'd be like, that guy's just different. He's just different. And his difference oozed out in everything he did. The way he approached life, the way he approached basketball. And he just kind of glowed with this differenceness that everybody kind of noticed. And there's stories as the stories of this. And so if I lived with Kobe and walked with him, and I can ask him one thing to teach me, I would say, teach me, how do you live this way? And you know what he would say? He would say, it's called the mamba mentality. Let me tell you. And I would just be his disciple. And I would listen. That that is at the core of everything that he does and who he is. Now, Jesus had very, very close-knit circle of people called disciples. They were the closest human relationships Jesus had on this earth. They literally walked with Jesus 24-7, right? They ate with him. They slept with him. They journeyed together. They lived together. And so they obviously would pick up on some things about Jesus, his habits, his behavior. Obviously, like Kobe, they know everything. This guy's different. He's not just a rabbi. He walks the walk. He's literally, think about this. He is the perfect embodiment of the fruit of the Spirit. Could you imagine living with someone that is perfectly loving, perfectly joyful, perfectly at peace, never phased by external circumstances, and yet so convicted by truth. And so they're noticing things about Jesus that he's just different, and they could ask him anything to teach anything. They could say, teach us how to be miraculous, teach us how to do these wonders and signs, teach us how to understand and teach the Bible. But there's only one recorded instance where they ask Jesus to teach them something. Luke 11.1, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord... Teach us to pray. It was not prompted by Jesus. 
Something about Jesus' prayer life piqued the interest of his disciples because they realized his differenceness is somehow tied to this thing called prayer. They picked up on that reality that prayer is not just this gimmick for Jesus, not just religion or some, some show that he's doing, but somehow prayer is related to the core and center of who Jesus is and all that Jesus does. And it is this palpable, profound communion that Jesus had with God that made them want to say, teach us. Teach us how to pray. Which leads to the second point. How did Jesus practice prayer in his life? Now, obviously, there's so much that can be said here, but I want to just highlight a couple aspects of Jesus' practice of prayer that can hopefully, at the very least, inspire and maybe begin to translate into our own personal practice. Now, what do I mean by prayer? Let me just give a very bare-bones definition to get us on the same page. Prayer is simply talking with God. It is communication with God. It's much more than that, but at, at least it's that. And the first thing I want to highlight is the content and the nature of Jesus' prayer before God. It was pervasive. It was all-encompassing. Here on this slide, you'll see just the, some of the references to when Jesus recordedly prayed in the Gospels, right? Some of these stories might be familiar. Each could be a sermon. Uh, raising of Lazarus, high priestly prayer, at his baptism, before choosing the twelve, at the transfiguration. And if I had the time, I would go in to tell you that if you try to find a pattern between these instances when Jesus prays, you can't find one. It's not like, oh, there's these seven instances and they're all tied because it's when Jesus is in distress. Or there's these eight instances, oh, it's because when Jesus needs something. No, I think it's intentional that the recorded prayers are quite randomized. Why? Because there is no rhyme or reason to the times and reasons Jesus prays. He prays in good times, in bad times, in crises, in times of struggle. He prays in the morning. He prays in the evening. He prays before big decisions. He prays in times of distress. In other words... Jesus is modeling and practicing what 1 Thessalonians 5 calls all of us to do, which is to pray without ceasing. You're praying all the time for anything and everything. Now, here's why this is important. For a lot of us, we view and treat prayer as a means to an end. The end itself varies for everyone, but nevertheless, a means to an end. For some of us, we pray so that we can feel fulfilled that we did our religious duty. It's legalistic in nature. So just like that dictionary was actually a functional prop, prayer is like a spiritual prop in our lives. No real value and power. It just makes us feel good, makes us look good. For others of us, we pray when we need something from God. So he's a means to an end in utility. This would be like we send text messages to God when he's useful and we ghost him when he's not. Others of us, we pray when we are angry or we want answers, so we want to give God a piece of our minds, a very monodirectional, one-direction, self-serving thing, like leaving an angry voicemail, right, to heaven, saying, God, I want you to hear a piece of what is on my mind and what I have to say. I could care less about what you think or why you did what you did. I'm just pissed. Now, here's the problem with viewing prayers as a means to an end. There is no genuine relationship. You guys see that? There is no connection. There is no communication. God's merely serving a purpose and function to serve you, but he's not a person you're actually connecting with. And that's why for so many of us, prayer is absolutely powerless. But for Jesus, the picture of prayer is that prayer, a.k.a. communing and communicating with God, is the end. It is profoundly relational in nature, and the end goal of prayer for Jesus is to talk with God. That's it. To live life 
with him, as we've been talking about all these weeks, to communicate with him, to dialogue with him, to include him, to consult him, to submit to him. And think about this. Is that not the marker of a close and intimate relationship, if not the closest and most intimate relationship, that you feel free and liberated to talk about anything and everything with this person? Why? Because you trust them and you know they love you and they care for you. Now remember, when we started this series, I thought Pastor Tom did a great job of introing that these spiritual practices, they're not intended to be burdensome or simply like dutiful religious obligations like a lot of us have become formed by. But they are part of Jesus' comprehensive invitation to find rest in him and to accept his tools for an altogether alternative life where you do not have to carry burdens and be weary in the way the rest of the world is. And in light of that, let me share an illustration of why prayer is a privilege. How beautiful it really is. If you didn't know, my parents, they live in Korea. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to visit them. And I remember the second night in their small apartment after eating dinner, uh, being a good son, I went to go throw away my trash. And to my surprise, my dad promptly stopped me and said, in Korea, you don't just throw away trash. I was like, what? That's confusing. And he says, you have to separate it. You have to organize it. So he took my bag of trash and he literally took out like the compost stuff, the plastics, the cans. Disgusting, right? And he says, in the morning, we got to go throw it away. And the next morning, I thought my dad was making a big deal. I'm like, what's the big deal? When we get there, I'll just throw it out. Uh, There's a picture here. I saw it firsthand. My dad was not kidding. That's what trash is like in Korea. It is stressful. (laughs) It is burdensome. And when you get there, you see all these people like, uh, like they're all like, it's like playing a game. And here's the worst part about it. Look how small those things are. I could fill one of those in like a, a second. And the entire apartment complex is sharing that. So it is very common, my dad said, you wake up early to get to the trash first. Because if you don't, and me and my dad had to do this because I woke up late, we had to take trash back. So we could throw it again tomorrow. Burdensome. And I was telling him about the glory of something called a dumpster. I said, Father... In my HOA community, you just throw trash away. You don't have to do this. And I couldn't help but think how burdensome it is to live that way, to accumulate trash, to have to sift through it. And I was explaining it to him, but I realized even my dumpster has limitations because it's not mine. (laughs) right? It doesn't say sand-based dumpster. It's my community's dumpster. And when my neighbor throws a party, even that dumpster gets filled. And I get enraged, right? So we all passive-aggressively just pile it on, pile it on. Why do I say this? Why am I talking about trash cans? Because what all of us crave more than anything else is a one-stop shop that is safe for us to be able to honestly and vulnerably share our joys, our struggles, our requests, our fears, and our anxieties, isn't it? Isn't that what we really want? No human relationship has the capacity or the love or the care to fill that need. And so here's what happens. You either live in a burdensome state where relationally speaking, you have to sort through your stuff. Yeah, this person, I could kind of share this stuff with. Uh, this person, they might be safe with this stuff. Ooh, this person's too busy right now, so I can't bother them. Burdensome. Or if you're like me, you just stuff it. Why bother? What if they, what if they have more trash than me? You know what happens? Trash always, always, always leaks, manifests, stinks. And 
pours out in negative ways. But because of Jesus and the access and privilege of prayer that he purchased for us by his blood, excuse this analogy, there is a massive heavenly dumpster with your name on it. And it says, try to fill it. You cannot. And you have 24-7 access via prayer. Now that is my feeble attempt to try to give you a glimpse of the privilege and beauty of prayer. That you get to talk with God. You have 24-7 access to share all your honest thoughts, unfiltered, no need to organize, no need to filter your feelings and your struggles. And so think about it. In one sense, yeah, you do have to throw out your trash. And it does require effort and discipline. Like you got a bag, you got to throw it out. But in another sense, you get to throw out your trash. It is both a, a, a burden in the sense that you have to do it, but it is a privilege in the sense that you get to do it. And here you have the two sides of practices. Something you have to do, and yet it is something you get to do. That's the paradox. There's a popular hymn, I think captures it well. And I, I've come to love this hymn, particularly when it comes to prayer. And so I'm just going to read the lyrics. Just meditate on this, what a privilege it is. It says, uh, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit and oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. The person who gets most affected by not praying is you. Jesus prayed not as a means to an end, but as the privilege lived out in continual fellowship and relationship with God. And through his death and resurrection, as we place our faith in him and what he has done, we have literally that same amount of access and privilege right now as we are. And quite frankly, if some of you guys, if you're honest, you have loads and loads of trash. It has just been stored there. You don't know what to do with it. You're trying to do it in a systematic way of getting it out in a safe way. And I'm saying you don't need to do that in the privilege of prayer. Now, more can be said, but I want to get to the application because, you know, make sure we end on time. How to practice prayer. There's a lot, but three things uh, I think that we can hopefully begin to consider as a church. First thing when you practice prayer, do it daily. Now, daily is like a D word, right? It's like a cuss word for people. Like daily? Like whenever I say daily anything, people say, what about like every other day or like every other week? And I'm like, no, daily, right? Now, before you tune me out as being impractical or unreasonable, please realize daily prayer is what the Bible says to do. I'm not suggesting it. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, and he says, give us today our daily bread. He doesn't say Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday bread, or weekly bread, or every other month bread. He says daily bread. He doesn't say when you feel like it bread. He says daily bread. And so if you don't get the point, that's the point. And if you take a survey of the Bible as well as church history, it was actually very common practice to pray at fixed times every day. In the Old Testament, Daniel ended up in the lion's den. Why? Because he prayed every day, three times a day. In fact, we're, we're soft, church. Can I say that? The medieval Christian practice, when Jesus said uh, to his disciples, can you not stay up a little bit and pray? They're like, amen to that. Let's get up. So they prayed seven times a day. One of them was at 3 a.m., Every three hours they prayed. 
I have a glimpse of that because I have a newborn and he gets up every three hours. If I had to do that every day, I would die, right? These medieval Christians were gangster. And so there was a Protestant Reformation and the reformer's name was Thomas Cranmer. Praise God for this guy. This guy speaks some sense. He said, hey, 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 seven times a day, that's crazy. How can ordinary people who work all day do that? So thank you, Mr. Cranmer. He's a gift to us all, people's champion. He recommended, how about we try two times a day? Once in the morning to start your day, once in the evening to end the day. And have you ever realized when you start something with prayer or when you end something with prayer, it radically alters what happens in between? You ever notice that? Like when I'm having a one-on-one with someone and I say, hey, can I pray for us? I kid you not, I firmly believe it, it changes the trajectory of what we're going to talk about. Because prayer has that power. So imagine every single day you're bookending your day with prayer and coming before God. I highly, highly want to challenge all of us to consider implementing it. It doesn't have to be crazy or lengthy so long as it's, condis- it's, it's consistent. And again, the paradigm is not religious duty. It is relationship. It is more akin to me saying, hey, can you talk to your spouse in the morning and evening rather than me saying, hey, can you fulfill this duty in the morning or evening? For some of you, that might mean 20 minutes. Others, it could be five minutes. Some of you guys, it might be lots of words. Others of you guys, it might be a sentence or two. Again, this is not performance. Nobody is evaluating you. It is you coming before the Heavenly Father. And I love what John Bunyan has to say to this. People like me, we need quotes like this. He says, in prayer, it is better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. And how many Christians have words without heart today? And Jesus, he looks at the church and says, this people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are just gone. They're nowhere near me. They don't love me. They, they love the world. It's just, it's a show. And I want to drive in the point that daily, if it sounds so daunting to you, there's so many things we do daily. You guys recognize that? The most obvious being checking your phones. Oh my goodness, could you imagine if you just spent one-tenth of the time you spent on social media in prayer? We'd be prayer warriors, right? One of the hardest-hitting quotes from one of the hardest-hitting pastors I know, John Piper, he says, one of the great uses of social media will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. Wow. (laughs) That Jesus can just take your phone and show you screen time and say, it was not because you didn't have time. So don't say that. I was personally so challenged by Tim Keller's story about how him and his wife, they pray every day. It wasn't always the case. They spent about a good 30 years before they started. And he said the way that happened was uh, one day his wife got sick, like really sick, not just a common cold, but like she started to get with age, actual sickness. And so she approached him and said, Tim, uh, I want you to pray with me more often. How beautiful it would be if married couples prayed together more often. And Tim said, you know, yeah, we tried that. Things get busy, you know, but things get tired. And so he said one night uh, she pricked her finger. And she put blood on the wall of their, their bed headboard. If my wife did that, whoo, <laughs> Tom, <laughs> something's going on, right? Crazy. Talk about making, a, making an impression. So she did that. And she said, looking at Tim, her husband, if somebody said to you, you have a disease that's going to kill you. Unless you take a pill every night at 11 p.m., you will live. But if you ever forget, by next morning, you will be dead. Would you ever just say, oh, I'm too tired? Would you ever forget? Would you ever not get to it? No, you'll always take the pill because it's a matter of life and death. And she, she looked at him in the eyes and said, if we don't pray every night together, we're not going to make it. And he said, since that day, that registered. 
And even if it's a minute a night, even if they're separated, they pray together, even if it's a minute a night. And what Jesus models and teaches for us, not only in his own life, but even our life today, is for Christians, we have to pray. It's not a suggestion. It's not an option or a recommendation. Jesus didn't view prayer as an optional thing in his life. Now, now granted, we may not necessarily know immediately what the benefits and consequences are of prayerfulness or prayerlessness. One, one thing I wonder, though, I wonder, our parents' generation were prayer warriors, amen? A lot of us stand on the shoulders of multi-generations of parents and grandparents who have on their knees gone before God and prayed for us and we're the beneficiaries of that and sometimes I wonder when we get to heaven if God might be, you see that, that those prayers are why you were blessed and you ended up that way and that's not a prosperity gospel thing, this is just to show you prayer does things and vice versa, I am terrified out of my mind as a parent now that I may be ushering in the generation with prayerless parents at our church what would the consequence now, vice versa, of that be? And the thing is, nobody, nobody knows except the courts of heaven. So it isn't a stretch to say that prayer is a matter of spiritual life or death for the Christian. And Satan will trick you into saying otherwise. So first is daily. Second is communally. Now this might be a big shift, obviously, because a lot of sermon has been about private prayer and personal prayer. But I have to include this because... There's such an emphasis on the importance of corporate prayer that happens in community and the church. Let me give a couple obvious examples. The Lord's Prayer, the literal template for prayer, it's, it's addressed in plural. Jesus doesn't say you individual when you pray. He says you plural when you pray. He's talking about the, the body of Christ, the, the community of believers. He's saying you guys, when you pray, this is how you should pray. In the book of Acts, one of the most fundamental and central activities of the gathered church was prayer. Ephesians 6 says, as you put on the armor of God, one thing that should always be happening is you should be always praying and making supplications for all saints, for the body, for members. And the Apostle Paul, when he's in his missionary journeys and he asks for prayer, he doesn't ask individuals, he asks churches. So he wouldn't say, hey, Sam, can you pray for me? He would say, hey, Grace Hill Church, can you pray for me? It is communal by nature. And all that is to say, a church that does not pray is not a biblical church. And this frightens me more than anything as a pastor here because in Mark 9, there's a story that Jesus says of a demon-possessed boy. And usually disciples can cast him out or whatnot, but this one doesn't come out. And they say, Jesus, how come we can't cast out this spirit? And Jesus says, because there is a certain type of, of evil spirit that can only be removed by prayer. In other words, there's some things that only prayer can accomplish in the life of the church and the kingdom. And this makes me think, well, obviously then, spiritual warfare is a biblical objective reality. Spiritual warfare is obviously going to be pointed towards God's church and God's people. And it makes me think, spiritually speaking, are, is our church like defenseless? Like, it makes me wonder, who prays for our church? I really thought about that. Like, even I struggle as a pastor. Like, I wonder, if, if we surveyed the members of this church, I wonder how many members have taken time to pray for our church. The members of our church need your prayers. The pastors and the staff need your prayers for protection. You have no idea how much spiritual warfare and attack happens. And Satan will have a field day if the prayers are not there. Our church will live or die on the prayers of the body. Now, a couple of practical ways you can do that. Number one, ask God to grow your heart. If you're like, I've never even thought about that. Ask him to make that something you think about. 
to pray for the church, pray for its members. Another practical way for those of you guys in community group, don't see prayers and afterthought, but see it as one of the core things you get to do in community. Hey, can I pray for you? What, what's going on? Let me cover you in prayer. If you don't have a community group, ask people for their prayer requests and mean it. I am so encouraged. Whenever I ask people, hey, how are things going? And they say, hey, by the way, Pastor, is there anything you need prayer for? And I, I wish I could say it's frequent. Unfortunately, it's rare enough where I'm pleasantly surprised. But how awesome would that be if that's the culture of our church? And third and lastly, not, not only dating, not only communally, but this is more uh, internal. You have to pray honestly. Or another way to put it is vulnerably. Here's what I mean. This is the aspect of prayer that is most challenging for me personally because I've built up such a religious filter that it's just hard to get rid of. You guys know what I mean? It's like that PK curse. Like when someone comes to my house, I have to clean it. It doesn't matter if you say, hey, just leave it dirty. I'll like pretend to leave it dirty, but it's like calculated dirty. You know what I'm saying? It's not real dirty. It's like 50% dirty. So I'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, our house is dirty. And I'll be like, no, it's not. I cleaned it, right? <laughs> Vacuumed it before you came. Are you serious right now? I'm not going to show you my honest dirt. And I have such a built-in religious filter. And think about it. A lot of us do. You know why? That's the result of the fall. What's the first thing that happened at the fall? Building cover. Nakedness is our greatest fear. Now, we might show some skin, but not all. That's who we are. We are we're afraid. We are hiding. We are shame-ridden. And it is remarkable if you consider that one of the most highlighted prayers of Jesus, he literally tells God the Father, you would think he's like this militant son of God, I'll do whatever you want, God. But literally the purpose of his coming to earth was to go to the cross. And in his prayer, Jesus says, I don't want to go to the cross. Like, let that sink in for a little bit. Is Jesus allowed to say that? Is he allowed to feel that? That's not okay. Like, you're literally here for the cross, and you're saying you don't want to go? And that's a profound truth about prayer. And if that's not enough, the entire heart-centered book of the Bible, the Psalms, there's some rated R stuff in there. And the book is there for a reason. It's there for people like us. You know, I think for many of us, we know conceptually that God desires for us to come before him as we are. But functionally and instinctually, we have a hard time believing it to be authentic and vulnerable. Uh, and for me, it shows up that I can't help but put rules around how, how I think I should come before God. Let me give you an illustration. I love watching singing competitions. It's like my guilty pleasure. Whether it's The Voice, right? Dish, dish, dish. I love that thing. Or, or American Idol, right? Or, or America's Got Talent. I love the singing auditions. And there was one audition that stood out to me. There was this young girl that came out on stage, right? And then she came out on stage. And Simon Cowell, he is like the, the meanest judge ever, right? Very straightforward, harsh guy. And he looked at her and he said, uh, what will you be singing? And she said this name of this f- super famous song that requires like incredible vocal talent. And it was kind of sad because when she said the song, like the judges were kind of like, okay, <laughs> here we go, right? Like, like rolling their eyes like, okay, let's see it. And she starts singing. And let me tell you this. It wasn't bad. She wasn't necessarily bad. But you could tell she was trying to sound like someone else. She was trying to sound like someone she's not. She was trying to perform, right? Perform someone else's song rather than singing from her own heart. And so Simon, as he often does, he stops her 20 seconds in. That's always the meanest thing, right? They're like, ha, ah, thank you, right? It's like, dude, just be nicer about it, right? But no. And he says, thank you. And then he thinks about it. And you think he's just going to send her away. But he says, do you have another song? Every now and then he has grace, right? And she thinks for a moment. And she says, well... I mean, I have an original. And he says, well, sing that. And so she starts singing. And it is the simplest, most basic sounding song. 
But you see these judges are like moved. And Simon like points at her, right? And he's like, there it is. And I'm like moved <laughs> at home. I'm like, oh my God. He's like, what's going on here, right? My heart. It's not because how impressive it is. It's because of how honest it is. How vulnerable and true to her. No one else can sing that song except her. That's what God wants in prayer and relationship. He doesn't want our cleanup act. He doesn't want our performance. He doesn't want you to sing other people's songs. He wants your true, honest self. What this looked like for me this past week as I was preparing for this sermon, if I look tired, it's because I am. Uh, I really wanted to be able to spend like quality time in silence and solitude in prayer because, you know, as a pastor coming up to preach, I wanted to be like, yeah, and you know, prayer this past week, I practiced it. Here's how I practiced it. And I had this like beautiful thing laid out where, you know, I was going to, you know, in the evening after the kids go down, go out to my patio and turn on my fire pit thing and turn on some like spiritual piano music and then breathe in like the cool evening air. And be like, Here I am, Lord, let's, let's pray. That was like my vision that I had, but both kids got sick at the start of the week. And it has been chaos in the Bay household. Uh, and a few nights ago, Zach and Ezra, they were not sleeping well, my two sons, wife and I, dead tired, feeling sick, go to the room to put Zach down for the third time, okay? And I am just like up to it. I'm like, oh, freaking Zach, don't even let me pray, right? <laughs> I had a plan, right? And so I go there, I'm sitting on my recliner and I'm just like rocking him because I know if I put him down, he's going to get up again. And I remember uh, I thinking in my head and just earnestly thinking and praying like, God, I am so tired I am so angry, God. How the heck am I supposed to pray? I was supposed to pray this like amazing thing and have like this beautiful illustration. And I swear, I'm not charismatic, but I felt God going like, there it is. Like that is the most honest prayer you've given in a long, long time. And it was this oddly clarifying experience that reminded me, and maybe some of you guys may be reminded of this too, that God wants to meet you in the place of weakness and vulnerability. That's his entry point, not eloquence and, and put-togetherness. And you see, that's what God wants of all of us. It is scary and terrifying to unearth what's really going on in our hearts before God, but it's a necessary step to truly unlock the power and privilege that is prayer. Now to conclude, I want to ask, how is your prayer life these days? Um, I'll close with this metaphor uh, that Tim Keller gave. I thought it's very helpful. He says, there's basically four states of prayer that you can be in. And ask yourself which one you are. He says, imagine your soul is like a boat with oars and a sail. Okay? Oars, the thing you row with, and a sail. He says, some of you in your prayer life, you're sailing. Meaning that you are living the Christian life and you are thriving. The wind is at your back. You are experiencing the love and presence of God. The spirit is moving. If that is you, amen, praise God. He says, others of you, you are rowing. What that means is you are putting in the work, you are praying, you are reading your Bible, but to be honest, it's more of like a duty than it is a delight. God seems kind of distant, doesn't seem organic. You might even be struggling with God and, and doubts about yourself, but you are continually doing the practices despite your feeling of dryness. And he says, third though, some of you are drifting. Drifting means you're experiencing the same dryness as rowing, but... Instead, you're letting yourself drift. You have ceased to do the practices. You no longer care to do these things. Come before God, go to church. Uh, in fact, sin is starting to take a normal part of your life. You drift into self-indulgent behaviors and sins to escape. And then lastly, some of you are sinking. Sinking means you've lost all sense of spiritual sensitivity. 
there is no forward momentum in your Christian walk. And the numbness in your heart is pretty much hardness now. And if any major difficulty comes into your life, your faith is just going to crumble. And you may even abandon it. Whatever state you identify with, the point of the metaphor Keller says is, there are things in this metaphor that we are responsible for. The means of grace, the practices, Bible reading, prayer, participating in church. And there are also things outside of our control like wind of the sails, life circumstances, our emotions, the movement of the spirit. And the point is this. If you pray, worship, and obey despite your circumstances and feeling, at the very least, you won't be drifting. And when the winds do come again, and they will, it's the promise of scripture, you'll move forward. On the other hand, if you do not practice these practices, you will at best be drifting. And when storms come into your life, and the Bible promises they will, you may be in danger of sinking. And he gives that extended metaphor to make this case, and I close with this. Therefore, pray no matter what. Because praying is rowing. Sometimes it's like rowing in the dark. You won't feel like you're making any progress, but rest assured the spirit moves and works through prayer. So with that being said, I'm going to invite the praise team up. And if I can lead us just in a brief moment of reflection before I close this in prayer. Yeah, ask yourself that very question. Are you sailing? Are you, are you rowing? Are you drifting? Or are you sinking? There's no right or wrong answer. There's only an honest answer. I think for so many of us, uh, being honest about where, we're, where we are is step one. And it happens in the place of weakness and prayer. So come before God, honestly reflecting, how are you doing in your life of prayer before him? Put away all pretense. Nobody cares. Nobody's looking or gauging. It's just you and God. And then I'll close this in prayer.